Let's talk about your 57-year-old man with follicular lymphoma. So this gentleman is 57 years old, and he underwent an upper endoscopy in July of 2009 for gastroesophageal reflux disease. In the first part of his duodenum, the mucosa apparently had a fungoid appearance. The tissue was biopsied, and pathology was consistent with grade 2 follicular lymphoma. As it turns out the patient had been seeing a hematologist oncologist for an IgA lambda monoclonal gammopathy, which was presumed to represent monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance and was simply being followed. The patient underwent a bone marrow biopsy at that time, which demonstrated 10 to 20% plasmacytosis, however, no evidence of lymphomatous involvement. CT PET scan in August of 2009 demonstrated minimal diffuse uptake in the region of the second and third portions of the duodenum. However, there was no intense hypermetabolic activity. The patient also had staging CT scans, which were negative. He underwent repeat colonoscopy and upper endoscopy at a local tertiary care center, which demonstrated multiple medium-sized nodules in the second part of the duodenum. He was again biopsied, and those biopsies were consistent with grade 1 to 2 follicular lymphoma. He saw multiple oncologists for second opinion and ultimately presented to me. At that time, it had been some time since he had been restaged, and I went ahead and repeated all of his workup, including a bone marrow biopsy, which again demonstrated no evidence of lymphomatous involvement and only 10% involvement of his bone marrow with monoclonal plasma cytosis. His monoclonal protein was only 0.3 grams per deciliter and serum immunofixation confirmed an IgA lambda monoclonal protein. Imaging, including CT PET scan and MRI survey, demonstrated no evidence of disease with respect to both lymphoma or myeloma. And so the patient was ultimately staged as having stage 1AE, follicular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma involving the small intestine, and IgA lambda smoldering myeloma. Now, while the patient's follicular lymphoma was technically a stage 1E, I felt that he required systemic chemotherapy as the growth of the tumor may have resulted in bowel obstruction. So given the activity of bendamustine in both follicular lymphoma and myeloma, the patient began a regimen of rituximab and bendamustine in March 2010. After three cycles of therapy, a follow-up enteroscopy revealed complete resolution of the lymphoma in his intestines. He completed his sixth cycle of rituximab and bendamustine in August 2007 and subsequently went on to begin a course of maintenance rituximab. A follow-up push enteroscopy in December was again normal and random biopsies were negative for lymphoma. His most recent labs from earlier this month demonstrate a normal CBC. His SPEP is negative, yet his serum immunofixation continues to demonstrate an IgA lambda monoclonal gammopathy. Any comments? So this is a fascinating case. First of all, small bowel follicular lymphoma is pretty rare. And I think, you know, you called it a stage one. I think for extranodal lymphoma, staging doesn't work very well. This is diffuse through the bowel. So to my mind, this is more like a stage four. Even though it's all in one organ, 
it's pretty diffuse. This is not a spot you can think about radiating or anything like that. And the other question is, is there any clonal relation between the follicular lymphoma and the myeloma clone? Now, marginal zone lymphoma often has a lot of plasma cells in it, just like you, know, you say malt lymphomas are full of plasma cells. So we've certainly seen marginal zone lymphoma with extensive plasma cell differentiation that can mimic myeloma. But follicular lymphoma, that's another step away. That's a bit of a stretch. So, you know, you could do molecular studies and see, but it's just fascinating that he has two B-cell clones. And I give Lyle a lot of credit for a number of things. Number one, the patient was fully staged, so we know that it wasn't just in the duodenum and where one doctor had recommended possibly radiation, which would have been not a good treatment. And number two, the choice of bendamustine, I think, was pretty inspired to hit both diseases and clearly worked. So I think that was great. And, you know, I think the choice of initial therapy for follicular lymphoma is clearly wide open, and bendamustine rituximab is certainly moving up on the list. How do you approach that decision? Well, we're using it more and more, and the new ECOG study is basically bendamustine rituximab with about fortezimib for induction. So I think more and more people are going in that direction, not burning bridges, leaving your anthracycline available if and when the patient does transform. And I think we're going to see that as a gradual evolution. We have a trial of rituximab, bortezomib, trying to get non-chemotherapy as our upfront trial. But again, I wouldn't do that off-study. Any comments about him as a person and sort of what his life's been like during this time? When he completed his treatment and was told that he had had a complete remission, he was actually quite happy. He had come to me after seeing multiple second opinions. And when I was reviewing his case before I went in to meet with him for the first time, I had this idea in my mind of using rituximab and bendamustine to sort of treat two things at the same time, even though one of them technically didn't necessarily require treatment, i.e. the smoldering myeloma. I walked into the room and I began talking with him and his wife and he already knew all about bendamustine and he had done quite a bit of research on the other potential drugs he could receive. He went to a tertiary care center and was offered a trial looking at rituximab, cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and prednisone, sort of the RCVP regimen where the V is bortezomib instead of vincristine. He was not enamored with the possibility of getting bortezomib-induced neuropathy and had done research and actually had heard about the Rummel presentation at ASH for treatment of follicular lymphoma. And he was very happy with the idea of rituximab bendamustine as his treatment, and he's very happy with the outcome. What kind of work does he do? Has he spent his time? He's involved in business. When he first was treated, he was working for a company, and he had just lost his job and was starting his own business. And now he's completely up and running with that. So one thing I found interesting, I did ask him, you know, he'd been doctor shopping, he'd been to several centers, other doctors, you know, how he sort of made the decision. And it was interesting. I mean, clearly he wanted someone he was confident in. One of the doctors was making phone calls in the room, like, what do I do with this guy? You know, which certainly wasn't inspiring that the doctor knew what he was doing. And the clinical trial maybe wasn't explained in exactly the right way, or, you know, the consent forms are so long and they list every potential side effect. But clearly he was shopping around and he found someone he was confident with, agreed on a plan, and has been very happy. So 
it's interesting when you see these people who are shopping around, what they're looking for. They're really not only looking for the right treatment, but they're looking for, you know, a doctor that they can bond with. What did you observe in terms of the interaction between Lyle and him? Well, I think, you know, they, they just, they love their doctor. <laughs> you know, basically, they would do whatever he said at this point. You know. Lyle mentioned that the second opinion or the academic doc mentioned a clinical trial that included bortezomib. What do we know about bortezomib and FL? So clearly, bortezomib is active in lymphoma. It's approved in relapsed mantle cell. It has activity. You can see how in the mantle cell, the ECOV follicular lymphoma trials, it's being incorporated. So we're all hopeful, but, you know, there's really not a lot of data. If you look at the data that's out there, there were two bendamustine rituximab bortezomib trials published. They're feasible. Neuropathy grade 3 was 10 to 15 percent, so not negligible. Usually, you know, reverses fairly quickly. But neither of those were positive studies. They did not meet their primary endpoint of beating historical rituximab bendamustine. Now, you know, maybe it's different population and all that. They're phase 2 trials. But we don't know yet that adding bortezomib, it's a clearly a reasonable research study, but, you know, in the absence of good solid data, it may not be the magic. It may be better as maintenance, maybe it is better, we still need to learn that. And again, whenever you're combining with other agents, people have done RCVP plus, this was replacing it, but the Canadian group did RCVP plus bortezomib, and again, there was some neuropathy, and it was not clearly better than RCVP. So I think the jury is still out on whether adding bortezomib into upfront chemo for low-grade lymphoma is going to be a benefit. And what about maintenance in this situation? He's obviously getting it. What do you think about that? Yeah, so again, this was the maintenance question in indolent lymphoma, follicular lymphoma in particular. You know, the data we have from the PRIMA trial suggests clearly, demonstrates a prolonged progression-free survival. We don't know yet whether that translates into overall survival. Maybe retreatment at relapse is just as good. But in the absence of that, if we can keep the disease away longer with relatively minimal toxicity, most of us are headed in that direction. How about the schedule of our maintenance? Yeah. So again, the schedules have been all over the map. Since the randomized data from Prima is one dose every two months for 12 doses or for two years, that has pretty much become the accepted dose. It used to be every three months. But even in the ECOG resort trial that was low tumor burden, when we gave patients rituximab every three months, half the patients had trough levels at the end of three months, which were below what we had targeted. So half the patients would have benefited from every two months. So with those two bits of data, most of us have gone to the every two months. The every six months, weekly times four, probably should be studied further, but probably not going to happen. Do you know if the resort trial is going to be presented at ASH? I talked to Brad Call a few months ago, and he was hoping, but anything new on that? To my knowledge, it is not. The problem is, it's not a problem for the patients. The problem is you need a certain number of events to see a difference. Of course, this was indefinite rituximab. And in low tumor burden patients who have a good prognosis anyway. So by the time people become rituximab refractory, can take years. And so it's a little bit frustrating because the study's been over and accrued, but until a certain number of patients become rituximab refractory. Now, what that tells us is that these phase three trials are analyzed once or twice a year by the data monitoring committee. And if there were a statistically significant difference that had come about, then the trial would be unblinded. So it suggests that if there is a difference, it's not going to be a huge difference. Any other thoughts or comments about him? One of the questions I had for Mitch is how do we survey him over time? 
follicular lymphoma of the intestine typically is not hypermetabolic on PET. In fact, pretty much anything inside the GI tract is not usually identifiable on imaging. And going for push enteroscopy is not without risk either. So the question I had, which again, I'm not certain there's a good answer for it, is how do you survey and with what frequency do you survey? And we had talked about maybe capsule endoscopy with every six to 12 months with push enteroscopy only if there's evidence of recurrence. And also there's nothing to say that he may not recur outside of his colon as well. So that's a whole nother. So if I were the nihilist, I'd say, why do you want to screen him anyway? Because if he's asymptomatic, there's no rush to do anything. But, you know, that being said, we all screen these patients. So you're right. I mean, if he relapses only in the GI tract, that is going to be hard. And maybe a negative capsule will at least give you confidence that he's not, you're not missing any big things. And periodically a CT scan to make sure that he's not relapsing outside the GI tract. And, but yeah, it's an interesting sight that you don't want to screen him with enteroscopies and risk something when he's otherwise asymptomatic. So there is no good solution, I think. We've done a fair amount with blood flow cytometry looking for a circulating clone. But again, even if you found it, you really wouldn't do anything. So you're kind of stuck.